Welcome to Season 2 of Typecast, Boston's new play podcast. I'm your host, Aaron Evans, the Managing Director of Boston Playwrights Theatre, the home for new plays in Boston. In this podcast series, we are diving deep into the new play ecosystem of Beantown, talking with playwrights, directors, actors, and theater makers of all types about bringing new plays into the world. Today, we have a pile of gifts under the tree, all four of our first-year MFA playwriting students who have literally just come out of a three-hour class, so I know their minds are sharp and ready. Normally, I would go through a litany of introductions here, but with four guests, I know you'd get pretty sick of my voice, so I am going to ask them to introduce themselves. So, team, tell us your name, where you are originally from, and name a playwright whose work inspires you. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, my name is Maggie Kernan. I'm from Melrose, Massachusetts, and uh, Annie Baker is my girl. <laughs> Hi, friends. I'm Brandon. Um, I am from Vancouver, BC. Um, one playwright that inspires me is Che Yu. Hi, I'm Tina Esper, and I'm from Montclair, New Jersey. And Anne Washburn is one of my favorites. Hello, I'm Isabel Samantha Stevens from Providence RI in Mashadi, Iran. And I really love Pro League and Sanaz Tusi. Thank you. Ooh, I love those lists. Couple of names that are new to me. I'm going to have to chat with you about those people. It is great to have you all with us. And one of the things that I love to do here on this podcast is to talk about the process of playwriting. So I want to start by trying to get a sense of how you all work. So who wants to talk a little bit about their writing process? Do you start by thinking about structure? Uh, is there a character who kicks things off for you? Do you start with a theme, like a topic you want to write about? How does it, how does it spark for you? Anybody? All right, I'll go. <laughs> um, I think usually um, something that usually gets me to start writing is something I can't process. Uh, it's usually something I've witnessed or gone through and it um, haunts me, it nags me, and I think, okay, it's time for that exorcism. <laughs> and, you know, I start uh, thinking about how am I going to take this story and look at it from a different point of view? Uh, let's put it on the page and dissect it. I'm going to process it. Um, and so it's really, I guess it's from traumatic experiences, and that usually is what helps me. Um, that's usually what motivates me to write. Anybody else want to take that one on? I think <laughs> I usually start from like a specific image um, or a place, uh, something that just that just sticks out to me in, in my everyday life out and about in the world. Um, so that's usually my initial spark, but then like, I can't really get into it and get into a groove with my process until I know who the characters are and who their voices are, which is usually like, I think of my situation and then I pull in people in my real life and I never reveal who they are. <laughs> and I, uh, just start to mirror how the people around me speak, uh, and that's sort of then I can 
create any situation, put the characters in the room together and and see what they do. Tina, you mentioned using trauma as a processing trauma as a breakoff point. Um, I want to follow up on that, but for you or anybody, if you're writing about that, if you're writing about something that is a heavy subject or difficult subject, how do you take care of yourself when you're writing about that? How do you take care of your audience when you're writing about difficult or heavy subjects? Anybody? I think it's hard to write about difficult subjects for the playwright, um, at least to start, because you're taking, uh, you know, it's an experience that's living inside of you that you're not comfortable with to begin with. Um, So for me, um, I'm thinking of a play I wrote a couple of years ago, and um, which was basically about... uh, an elderly woman who was raped. And I walked away from that play. I, I had a hard time for like six months. I just couldn't write it, you know? And I I pretty much remembered um, this woman's story and I wrote it as like a monologue. And I had to stay away from it because it was too painful to read. And I almost scrapped the whole thing, you know? So it took a while to write it. It's, it was not an easy process. Um, I think when uh, I finally had an aud- audience listen to it, it had already been, uh, it had become something so different from the original story. It took on a life of its own. Uh, so it became more entertaining. And the, it, it was not just the rape monologue. It became so, something so much bigger than that, which made it much easier for an audience to process that. I find even more therapeutic than actually like writing down things I'm I'm working on processing is like is then when you get the play in a room and you're hearing it out loud and people are responding to it um all of a sudden is is not about you it's about the characters and what they're going through and it all of a sudden it's this like third party thing that's happening outside of you and a lot of times people reading your work don't know what's what's from real life and what you have crafted and just and sort of thinking of it as something outside of yourself as a story being told to me feels sort of like the final uh you referred to it as an exorcism like that part of it to me feels like that oh this is this is going away now this is leaving and the idea that you can create something you know powerful and 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 beautiful and that there can be something positive that didn't exist in the world that came out of something that you had to go through. I think also in terms of taking care of the audience, um, I think a lot about the fetishization of trauma in stories. Um, It's something that I realized when I read The Pillow Man by Mara McDonough, which I think was a very specific critique against the culture of fetishizing trauma in theater and movies and in stories in general. But I think um, whenever I have a moment of pain, of trauma, of death, whatever that may be very intense or triggering for the audience, um, I think I have to justify that with myself and why that needs to be a part of the story and why that reaction needs to be elicited. Um, Because I think that I'm also very hyper aware of 
playwrights in my own communities, you know, queer playwrights and uh, Asian playwrights specifically who incorporate a lot of that pain into their stories um, and being aware of who the spectator and who the audience is, is something I'm always thinking about as an Asian and queer person, an Asian queer storyteller. Um, because to what extent is my is a pain and trauma that's being portrayed on stage something that's relatable and productive or is it something that's going to be triggering and something that's going to be repeating historical oppression on the audience that is not in the theater to relive that experience you've all chosen to be playwriting students so what kind of stories do you want to tell uh, yeah, I like to tell stories that are within the realms of fantasy and science fiction, um, because that's sort of the background I come from outside of theater. I'm a huge sci-fi nerd, and I, you know, it's it's the stuff that I consume since I was a teenager all the way up until now. And I really think that there is, even though it's rare, there is a space for that kind of genre in theater. I think theater is so well suited to those genres and using those genres to critically dissect very relevant modern social issues. I'm surprised it's not, you know, a bigger thing. Um, So I'm always about bringing in, you know, strange concepts and sci-fi genres into the stage because I just want to see more of it myself as an audience member. I agree with Brandon. Um, You know, I'm also very drawn to unusual things. I like naturalistic plays, but I also like trying new things, taking risks. I love what Brandon is doing. I've gotten to know his work. Um, And I think, you know, the absurd is something I like holding up a mirror to what I believe is like the absurdity of life and then kind of concentrating that into my plays. And uh, I also like to center um stories on older people i don't think we have enough older people on stage in the american theater that's sort of like a a a goal of mine okay maybe this goes back to the earlier question so that's my bad i think i write or what inspires me to write is like i'll be feeling a big feeling and i want other people to feel that feeling without necessarily having to experience whatever i experience i want it to be something that kind of reaches above that And so I like writing stories where people feel seen and kind of understood or stories that can bridge gaps in understanding and kind of create dialogue, but also opportunities for, you know, people from the communities that I come from and communities I hold dear to my heart. I like writing stories where, I don't know, where love is at the center, I guess. One of my friends told me that all I can write about is love and loss. (laughs) And since she said that to me, I see it everywhere, which, you know. Not a bad thing. Not at all. Isabel, what are your communities? Um, I'm a first-gen American. My dad is from Iran. My mom's Irish. <laughs> um, I grew up with no blood family around me, and my dad died when I was very young. Um, so I was kind of like welcomed into the Hispanic and Latina community of Rhode Island. So I grew up like with Spanish-speaking people, queer community, but also just like um, womanhood and like feminism and womanism are really important to me in my work too. One of my plays, the first play I wrote had like one female character. Every play since has had zero male characters. So I think that's just, <laughs> I don't know what that says, but it says something. Yeah, I also uh, try to write 
every single play I write it cannot have more men than anyone else <laughs> in it. Sorry about it. Uh, and that came from being a woman and going to auditions as an, as a performer of like, you know, there's three guys here and they're all going to be a callbacks. Uh, so just, just as far as like <laughs> writing to the communities that I'm seeing and the people who are showing up um, and the actors that are, that are out there and giving them opportunities where I can. Um, yeah. My stories come from that, that need of like, who do I want to see on stage? And what you said about love, like not necessarily romantic love, but like just the audience's ability to love the characters of like creating people that everybody in the audience wants to spend time with, even if they are flawed um, and spaces that the audience wants to spend time with. Like I really love going into a a theater and feeling like sort of cozy and present in the world of the play and wanting to be there for for two hours I think that always helps <laughs> um yeah so I'm usually writing like either very naturalist contemporary sort of moments or um every once in a while I write like a very lyrical historic history <laughs> what's it called historic, historic. fiction historic, yeah. uh thank you so I'm usually one or one or the other very contemporary or very like lyrical from the past that's great I have another thing to say what I thought of <laughs> but um I come from a low-income background too and also I mentioned Spanish but like multilingual as in non-English speaking um and so I'm really into theater that is accessible both financially like I didn't see plays growing up and that's also why I'm not exposed to a lot of really popular plays as all of my friends here know now but um yeah plays that are accessible not only financially to different groups but also like to people from multilingual backgrounds you know that decenter and decolonize language in that way uh, financial accessibility for theater is actually one of my jams uh the theater company that I used to run we we had um all kinds of super cheap ticket prices and eventually adopted a audience choose uh however much they wanted to pay for any ticket for any show including free so uh i i think it's super important i'm glad you brought that up um so Maggie mentioned Annie Baker earlier, and I so happened to hear that you all were studying her play The Aliens in Ronan Noon's playwriting class this semester. That happens to be one of my favorite plays of all time. And uh, I thought we might do a little exercise here, read a short scene from The Aliens and break it down a bit. So we've got a, a short scene here from Act One of The Aliens. I need a, I need a Jasper and I need a KJ. Brandon's going to be Jasper. Who's going to be KJ? I will be KJ. All right. Maggie's going to be KJ. All right. Great. So quick context for those who are unfamiliar with this play, Jasper and KJ are... Uh, good friends, kind of stoners a little bit, uh, who hang out uh, a lot behind a coffee shop in Vermont. And that's where we find them in this scene. Before we get into the scene, just a quick warning. There is some adult language in this upcoming scene that may not be suitable for all listeners. Take it away, Brandon and Maggie. Did you know that Andrea started dating that guy? You did, didn't you? You don't have to hide it from me or anything. I'm actually happy about it. Wait, what? She's dating that guy, Sprocket. She's dating a guy named Sprocket. I had no idea. It's cool if you did, man. 
I had no fucking idea. I swear to God. Who's Sprocket? The tall guy with the hair at Noah's party. He makes his own pants. Oh, God. He takes like that fucking Chinese kimono cloth and sews his own pants or something. And everybody makes a big fucking deal about it. Oh, man. Sprocket. His real name is probably like Barnaby or something. Huh. Yes. So you you didn't know? I did not know. She called me to tell me last night in case I saw them together. I'm telling you, it ended up being one of the best nights of my life. I was just doing nothing, fucking staring out the window. And then I get this phone call and she has this like haughty tone. And she's like telling me that. Uh, hold on. Are you okay? Yeah, I just had to like breathe. Whoa. I feel fantastic though. Wow. That was like a crazy head rush slash heart attack. Okay, so she calls me and delivers the big news or whatever in the most condescending, freakish manner possible. And I call her a cunt, which if you recall, was like the big no-no word in our relationship. And she says, you promise never to call me that again. And I say, are you actually listening to yourself? And I hang up. And then for like five minutes, I'm like, worst five minutes of my life. Actually, no, not the worst five minutes of my life. Bad, though. What were the worst five minutes? But then I remember something your fucking mother told me over dinner. Sandy Jano? I remember something Sandy Jano told me. She said it was like three years ago when I crashed on your couch. Oh, yeah. I was like talking to her about how I was always like getting kicked out of places and like sleeping on floors or whatever. And she was like this uh, this in between state, this being unstable or whatever if you accept it was she talking about her gender no 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 no. she was like the state of just having lost something is like the most enlightened state in the world and i thought of that last night and all of a sudden i felt like incredible i was simultaneously like being stabbed in the heart over and over again with this like devil knife but i also felt euphoric and i sat down and i wrote like 20 pages in one night and they were just the book just it just switched in a totally different direction. He leaves Iowa City. The whole thing was supposed to take place in Iowa City, and he leaves. He's going to California. Awesome. All right. Thank you, Brandon and Maggie, for reading that. Amazing scene. Let's dive into it. Anybody jump in. What do you like about this scene? What is what What works about it for you? What doesn't work? What jumps out about it in terms of Baker's writing? Anything. There's so much history between these two characters and we don't really like outside of this scene, it's all sprinkled in throughout the play, but we don't necessarily get much more than this about either of like, we're talking about KJ's mother, Sandy Jano, and we're talking about Andrea, uh, Jasper's ex, which this, the, the end of that relationship is, is sort of an inciting event for, for Jasper in this play and his emotional state throughout this play. But we don't really get a lot of information from um, more about these characters that exist not directly in the script, which I just think is so interesting how Annie builds exposition and what she includes and what she doesn't and, and where she puts it. And I think with the, in dialogue with the rest of the play too, this this piece of conversation really demonstrates the relationship between Jasper and KJ as two sort of, you know, I don't know if they're straight, but like 
mask presenting men who have this relationship that always is like the, the conversation sometimes is are they being rude to each other are they just calling each other out or are they and then they all always go back to that kind of thing this like um balancing act of aggressive rudeness and also tenderness in moments that i think really captures sort of the reality of a lot of ma male relationships and also the toxic aspect of how men talk to each other and the way they have to um put on a front in order to become vulnerable and talk about emotions or art yeah i mean when i'm reading this scene what's so masterful about it to me is like you know a lot of jasper's lines are about how amazing he feels and how productive it was and how incredible it is. And like, he's all that fronting when, when I'm reading it and what I'm seeing when I hear it is he's devastated, you know, like it's the exact opposite and she doesn't say any of that. And he doesn't have him say any of that, but it's all like right there. And in terms of like what, as you're saying, Brandon, what mask he's putting on uh, for KJ in the scene. I love the line where Jasper says, referring to Sprocket, he takes like that fucking Chinese kimono cloth and sews his own pants or something. And, and everybody makes a big fucking deal about it. And I think, you know, he's really describing a little bit about himself here, you know, because Jasper is the one who makes such a big deal about himself and, you know, and his writing. And she's captured this wonderful manic moment in this character, Jasper. And KG throughout this play has always felt to me like, you know, the, the handmaiden, <laughs> you know, Jasper's handmaiden. Mm -hmm. And again, in the scene, we see that, um, you know, Jasper's king. And he's like, what, you didn't know? You had no idea? Yeah, it has a, I think in some ways it feels like royal court, you know, it's like, were you in on this betrayal? Yeah. What's going on? You know, and it, it's got it has shades of like Shakespeare to me. I think something that we were also missing from the reading a little bit were the stage directions because we didn't really get to see them. But, you know, with again, uh, with in conversation with the rest of the play, like what is so wonderful is Annie Baker's use of movement, which was something that we were just talking about in class about, you know, giving actors something to do. And if you read the stage directions of the dialogue that we just read, there was so much about KJ and Jasper, you know, moments where they're making eye contact, they're smoking throughout the whole scene. But there are moments in which they're doing something, they're trying to be intentional. Sometimes they're not being intentional at all. Sometimes it's just random. And I think there's such a specific movement language that we see from the playwright, which I think is very rare. I think Annie Baker has a very specific vision of how the actors are moving and interacting with each other through their bodies that we don't see a lot in a lot of contemporary plays. Yeah, and her specificity is just so, it's so detailed. Um, the, the, the little nuances that she puts in there, uh, even what seems like a throwaway line um, when uh, KJ interrupts, when Jasper is talking about KJ's mom, Sandy Jano, and about being in transition, and he pipes in with, oh, you're talking about her gender stuff. And it's like, no, no, no. And then and that gets just get lost. We never hear anything about that ever in the rest of the play. And, and yet you there's like a whole story there. There's like a whole history, like Maggie was talking about, in that one little throwaway line about, Sandy Jano and the, even the fact that they call her Sandy Jano right like 
why not just Sandy? There's just some real like history and specificity there that just absolutely, for me, just blossoms that relationship to life and that world. And I love that Jasper has this artistic breakthrough in his moment of despair. And he wants to share it. You know, it's like the guy's leaving Iowa City and he's going to California. You know, it's like there's so much humor in this very tragic moment that works so beautifully. And there's all these pauses that we didn't really sit in as long as certainly Annie would like. Because <laughs> um, at the top of all of her plays, she has these notes, these very specific notes about like how many minutes the pause should be and what's a short pause, what's the length of a short pause versus a pause versus a long pause, which is like so such a power move. To be like, nope, you're going to sit and this is how long it's going to be. Um, and you can feel that coming from the process of working with actors who kind of just want to like, who are scared of holding the audience in that in that moment. And I uh, I took undergraduate playwriting classes with Ronan Noon as well, who we just had class with. And I remember when we read this play, Ronan asked us if we had the guts uh, and I was like, I don't have the guts. And um, I'm still trying, like, that's still something that I'm that I'm wrestling with as a writer of like, just be brave enough to write the word ladder 50 times on this page. It's okay. And for the audience to, to be in that and to just accept that that's what the story is and needs to be. Yeah, I love those silences. And they're so uh, scary for actors, but also, I think, as you say, a power move, like just, just being like, you're just watching the actors. They're not saying anything for, I mean, in this play, sometimes minutes at a time, uh, it's, it's incredible. Yeah. I think at the top of the play, she also writes, uh, at least a third of this play should be in silence, which does quantify it. You know, if it's a 90 minute play, 30 is going to be in silence. Thank you all for breaking down a little bit of that and uh, sharing your insights into like what goes into the thought process of going into writing and analyzing some scenes. Uh, I think we've all earned a short commercial break. So we're going to take a short break to hear from our sponsor for this episode. And when we come back, more from our first year playwrights. As we speed toward the holiday season like a sled down an icy hill, Exhaustion and burnout are at an all-time high. The December air chills you to your bones. It's getting dark in the middle of the afternoon, and all you want to do is wrap yourself in a blanket on the couch. But the good people at Jumpstart understand that too much downtime and relaxation inevitably leads to stagnation. So they've developed a foolproof system to jumpstart you out of the doldrums of too much rest during these festive times. Simply open their new app and scroll through their library of cacophonies that are scientifically proven to elevate your heart rate and get your brain buzzing. When you start feeling tired in the office at 2 p.m., just put on your headphones, crank the volume, and feel your eyes pop as you listen to their selection of construction noises, nails on chalkboards, silverware scraping along plates, and more stressful options. Worried you'll fall asleep waiting to buy those Taylor Swift tickets? Fret no more. Scroll down to the music section and listen to Untuned Violin Played by a Six-Year-Old on Loop, a curated playlist of first-round American Idol rejects, or you can even upload your own videos of your mother-in-law singing Christmas carols after one too many eggnogs. So remember, 
When you start feeling a little too cozy, just grab your phone and open Jumpstart to get tense again in a hurry. Welcome back to Typecast. We are back with Isabel, Brandon, Tina, and Maggie, BPT's first-year playwriting cohort. Friends, some people might say that you have to be crazy to pursue a degree in playwriting in this day and age, and yet, here you are. What would you say to those people? Have we met before? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, on a serious note, I I agree. I think... (laughs) Any degree in theater is is a risk. I feel like I say this to younger people who are thinking about going to theater or art in general. You know, if you, I the advice I give is that if you can do anything else, do that thing. Um, you know, I personally am here because I can't do anything else. Not because I'm incapable, but because I physically, you know, as an artist, I can't. I can't imagine myself spending my life doing anything else. And it's really the only way for me to live and express myself. Um, And I think unless you're at that crazy mental state, (laughs) um, I think going to art may not be for you because it's a tough life out here. I would say robots can't make art. And I guess that's a big, bigger conversation about what (laughs) art is and where can it come from. But I have always been like, robots can do every other job. And they they may one day come for every other job, but they we will always need human playwrights. <laughs> uh, I have two things to say. Life is so incredibly short. You could die tomorrow. So wouldn't you rather be doing something you enjoy with the time you do have? And I guess that leads into the second thing, which is it is possible to fail at anything. So why not fail at something you enjoy doing? And... On that note, I think, why not succeed at anything? With that in mind, why not invest in something that is really meaningful to you? Yeah. I'm going to pick up on that, Tina. Uh, I'm going to pick up on that optimism, because I think there's a lot of reasons that we could come up with to be pessimistic about theater in America right now. But what are some reasons to be optimistic about theater in America right now? Um, I think a lot of things are changing um, for the better, especially with diversity. I think we're seeing a lot more stories of people of color, stories about people with disabilities on stage and actors and performers are really being included in that conversation, too, about, you know, who are we including in the room and what kind of stories are we trying to tell? You know, there's a long there's a there's a lot there's a long way to go. But at least in my experience, especially seeing Chicago theater in the past few years where I did my undergrad, um, I was becoming aware of the the changes that were happening and the programs and the opportunities that were given um, to artists who were not represented before. So I'm, I'm very optimistic about that. I think that conversation is still happening and it's happening on really big stages and platforms. And I think that's really important. We were talking about accessibility a little bit and like one of the things that happened with COVID was the realm of virtual theater. Mm-hmm. And not as I don't really want to talk about like, <laughs> Zoom plays right now, but um, all of the theater that became available to stream and still is, there are still, you can still buy tickets to a show to watch it live streamed. Um, something that has stuck around and been built up. And like, I, I've gone to a lot of national theater screenings from the National Theater in London in the movie theater, but now they have a streaming site that you can pay for like Netflix and watch their stuff at home. So it's 
an interesting conversation because it's like, well, the point of theater and why we love theater is the ephemeral nature of it and that it is fleeting and that you go and you exist in this space with everyone else. But also there's real value in being able to see a show that closed months or years ago that you otherwise never, ever would have been able to see and experience um, and being able to put that on at home, whether we consider that to be the true nature of theater or not. And adding on to that, it's become so much more available to people with physical disabilities and differences. So like if a theater's not up to code for whatever, you know, like this is an opportunity for them to engage with something. I think we're also experiencing this post-pandemic optimism. And it feels like the theater went dark for a few years. And now we're re-emerging. And it's sort of like a renaissance. We're being reborn into the theater. And I think we are feeling uh, this survivor's euphoria. Like, you know what? It's a whole new world. And I've got some ideas. And now there, there's no better time than now. I think we all have felt like a brush with mortality. I think the pandemic was a really frightening time for us personally and for the theater. And we made it through. And we're going to take this opportunity to have our voices heard. And And I can say that this group, that this cohort, I think we're optimistic. And I I feel like we have, there's like a kindness. I, I really feel like this is a really special group. And I do feel a sense of optimism. You know, even though we write about maybe dark things about love and loss and, but I think there is a, I, I feel it. I feel that we're, we're very positive. We're very optimistic and it, we don't have a dark outlook. I think we're all really happy to be here and be doing what we're doing. Uh, that's wonderful. I couldn't agree more. That is wonderful. You've laid a, a foundation, an interesting case for being optimistic and uh, sort of wide to pursue playwriting or art in some ways. Um, I'm let's let's take it down to the practical though. If you had one piece of practical advice for writers who are just starting out, what would it be? I think every day, if if you can be a little bit more confident, like give yourself an exercise where every day you do one thing that lets you feel that incrementally more confident than the day before. Because I think there are so many artists that I've known over the years who lost confidence for a number of reasons. Uh, I think believing in yourself is one of the hardest things for a writer. And I think it's really important to surround yourself with people who believe in you. And I think that's really tough for, for artists. So my bit of advice is surround yourself with people who don't make you feel like you're crazy for doing what you're doing. And to add on to that, <laughs> I think I think having an ego is really important for an artist. Um, I was talking to Isabel about this, but I think not only self-confidence, but be a little bit more, be a little bit more narcissistic about your work. Because um if you don't believe in your work, nobody else will. And I think that maybe it's because we're in Boston Playwrights Theater where, you know, the process really do put us on a pedestal. But I think being in the room and being able to make demands for your art and being able to speak for your art 
and staying true to all the things that you want to say is really important. Um, and I think that having that ego is really important if you want to be able to communicate what your art means to other people, especially your collaborators. I'm going to expand on what both of you said about supporters and collaborators and and your your creative community and sort of building out a creative community of people who support your work, but also challenge your work. Um, and not only do I have actor friends and, and director friends and designer friends who are reading and responding from whatever avenue of the theater or art or life in general that they are coming at a play from but I, being in in writers groups and and uh being being challenged to generate work it's like I got a writers group meeting on Tuesday so I have to write 20 pages for that and if I don't write 20 pages that's fine but I've missed my opportunity so just like a very practical what I function uh almost exclusively on deadlines so um I think I think a very practical piece of advice is just get yourself a situation where you can hold yourself and others are holding you accountable to get it done. I think not taking every piece of feedback that you get, I think it relates to the ego thing, but like trusting yourself that you do know better about your art than other people. It, it doesn't mean that you shouldn't take any feedback. Um, I'm not saying that. But I think there are a lot of times where we can get overwhelmed or confused when we get all of these audience responses to what you thought your play was about, but then they're saying things that was never in your intention. I think that was the biggest moment of my playwriting journey was realizing that I could say no to some pieces of the feedback and say, actually, no, I don't think that your perception or your critical your criticism applies to my writing and that I do want to keep the part because I was intentional with it. I think being able to, again, trust yourself and trust your artistic vision um, really allows you to flourish. And especially when you're writing things that are so true to you, you have to trust yourself and listen to yourself. Isabel, do you want to take us home on this one? Yeah, I think my advice would be just to write, you know, don't think too much. Don't go into it being like, I have a plan, I need to follow it. I think if you just write, you'll find something. However it shows up. For real. Just write. I love it. The new Nike campaign. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We are going to close out this episode with a game we like to call Playwrights Against Humanity. If you're familiar with the game Cards Against Humanity, then you basically know the rules. The difference here is that all of the prompts that our playwrights are going to be responding to are lines from Annie Baker's The Aliens. So <laughs> here's how it's going to work. I'm going to read out a prompt, and you will each choose a response from the cards that you have in front of you. Our judge for this game is our student producer, Sydney Love. Sid, you decide which responses you like the best. I'll keep score, and we'll see who can rack up the most points in a quick lightning round. So, are you playwrights ready to play? Yeah. Yes, sir. All right, here we go. First prompt. We'll start with you on this one, Maggie. We'll go down the line in terms of responses. Maybe we'll just go back and forth that way. First prompt is the worst Five minutes of my life. N Nickelback. <laughs> Nickelback is the worst five minutes of your life. Brandon. Cats the musical. All right. Cats the musical. Tina. 
$5 footlongs. <laughs> and Isabel. Surprise sex. <laughs> oh, okay. no. I feel like I know which one won. <laughs> Sydney, who is the winner of round one? I'm going to go with Isabel on this one. <laughs> All right. Isabel gets the win for prompt number one. All right. Prompt number two. Isabel, you won. We're going to start with you this round. Here's your prompt. What was the name of the band? Sweet, Sweet Vengeance. Sweet, Sweet Vengeance. All right. Over to you, Tina. Flying Sex Snakes. <laughs> Brandon. Cats the musical. <laughs> you can't use it again. I can't. No. Wait, that wasn't part of the rules. Yeah, you you gave up. You have to imagine that those were cards, and you've you've already played that one. So try again. Oh, I don't want to try again. All right, you uh, forfeit, Maggie. <laughs> Menstrual rage. Oh, all right, all right. So Sid, who is the winner? I'm gonna go with Maggie this time. It's Maggie. Yeah. Menstrual Rage. It's, uh, <laughs> clearly, a, clearly an underground uh, punk band that uh, <laughs> be playing playing nearby soon. All right, we're gonna go uh, back to you, Maggie. You won that point, so we're gonna go to you first again for this third prompt, and it is: you dropped out, right? Why? The Kool Aid Man. The Kool Aid Man. Brandon. A lifetime of sadness. Tina. <laughs> no. Free samples. Free samples and Isabel. Axe body spray. Axe <laughs> <laughs> body spray. All right. Good ones. <laughs> All right. Why did they drop out? Sid, who's the winner? Axe body spray. Oh, Isabel. Isabel taking the lead. Oh my God. <laughs> All right, here we go. Next round, Isabel, you're up first again because you got that one. So next prompt is, what did he die of? Mm, Joe Biden. All right, Joe Biden. Tina. Our first chim chimpanzee president. All right, Brandon. Nicholas Cage. Yeah, <laughs> I hate when I have a good case of Nicholas Cage. Maggie. <laughs> Switching to Geico. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Sid, that's a that's a tough round right there. Who's got it? Mm -hmm. Brandon's got this one. Nicholas Cage. Brandon is on the board. All right, Brandon. That means we start with you this time. Great. Your prompt is: I'm going to bless you. I'm going to remove your. Puberty. <laughs> All right, over to you, Tina. I'm going to remove your what? Really cool hat. <laughs> Isabel. Oversized lollipop. All right, Maggie, last one. Lunchables. All right, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to remove your lunchable. Sid, who won this round? Tina won this round. <laughs> Tina, nicely done. Thank you. Thank you. I think you must have been thinking of me and my really cool hats that I wear all the time, I think. 
<laughs> All right. Well, that is the end of the game. I am tabulating the scores. One more round. There it is. Five rounds. And the winner is it's Isabel. <laughs> Takes it home. <laughs> yes. So uh, the prize, of course, is uh, a full scholarship to the MFA. <laughs> oh, oh, no. <laughs> I'm just hearing, I'm just hearing, nope, that, that's not the prize. Sorry. It's bragging rights. The prize is bragging rights. I want to thank our guests this week, Maggie, Tina, Brandon, and winner, Isabel. Hey, do you all have uh, websites where people can find out more about you? Let's, let's, can we get some web addresses here? Yes, it's just my name, brandonzang.com. There is no H in Zang, it's just Z-A-N-G. Got it. Who else? I'm working on it. <laughs> Once it goes up, it will be my name. <laughs> All right. Stevens.com. Mine is tinaesper.com. And mine is, get this, maggiekernan.com. <laughs> no, Wait, we're so consistent. <laughs> wow, you, you really are extremely oh, consistent. So good. So good. so good. <laughs> All right. Well, if you want a little bit more information about everybody except for Isabel, because she's under construction, <laughs> check out those websites. And on our website, bostonplaywrights.org, uh, right now you can get more information and tickets uh, to our newest world premiere production, OTP by Elise Ween. Uh, Brandon, you're working on this show right now. How would you describe OTP? It is funny. It is chaotic. It is extremely repressed teenage sexual energy. And it's funny. I know I already said it, but that was part of the joke. So All right. Good. Yeah, no, it's doubly funny. <laughs> and it uh, also has uh, Barack Obama in there. So you don't want to miss that. Uh, it's, about, it's a Barack Obama fan fiction. Yes. <laughs> Love it. It runs from December 8 to 18 right here at BPT. Tickets are on sale right now so come on by and see our last show of 2022 thanks for listening everybody until next time i'm darren evans and this is typecast today's episode and parody commercial were co-written by me and our student producer sydney love who also edited the theme music is off to osaka and the final credits music is malt shop pop both by Kevin McLeod. You can find his incredibly wide-ranging music at incompetech.com. That's I-N-C-O-M-P-E-T-E-C-H.com. For more information about Boston Playwrights Theatre, including our season of new plays, visit bostonplaywrights.org. <laughs>